This is Faster Forward from Northern Trust Asset Servicing. In this podcast, we explore stories, insights, and lessons learned from leaders and innovators who are driving transformation across their industries. I'm Patrice Sikora, and with me today is Gary Paulin, Head of Global Strategic Solutions at Northern Trust. Gary will share his career background and current role at Northern Trust, and he will also discuss transformational changes he sees ahead for asset owners and asset managers, the key challenges these groups face, and the impact AI will have on the industry. So, Gary, welcome. Good to be with you today. Why don't you tell us about your background and your career before Northern Trust? Sure, and and thanks, Patrice, for the opportunity. So, I grew up on a fruit farm in rural New Zealand, where, like most young Kiwi kids, my first passion was rugby. (laughs) Um, But in my spare time, I uh, managed to to study for a sports science and later a, a law degree. And in fact, my first job offer was to become a barrister. But after spending a few days in a courtroom, I quickly realized that job wasn't for me. And so I took up an offer to play rugby in Italy, in Milan. Um, From Italy, I moved to the UK uh, after getting a a rugby scholarship at Cambridge University, uh, where I read social and political science for uh, for two years. Uh, And then naturally, for a trained barrister and part-time philosopher, I I took up an internship with the investment bank Merrill Lynch within their equity sales department. Uh, And I don't know if you remember, but Merrill's at that time was known as the thundering herd and they were the spearhead of, of a lot of what was going on in the dot-com mania, um, mm-hmm. IPO, a number of uh, what became quite infamous companies like Pets.com. Um, and so I got a, a ringside uh, seat to, to seeing some of some of those trends, uh, which in terms of the Pets.com, I think that marked the very top of the NASDAQ bubble back in March of 2000. You could be right, yes. Uh, <laughs> I then ended up being offered a position on there MBA graduate program, and I was shipped off to start my career in in New York, where my first day in the office coincided with September 11th, 2001, with our office attached to the World Trade Center via a footbridge. So uh, a, a first day in the office story, I think few would probably forget in a hurry. And not be too jealous um, of either, really. No, 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 that's true. So I worked at Merrill selling European stock ideas ostensibly to long only uh, and hedge fund managers, uh, in reality, anyone that would listen. And then sometime during that period, I met our current head of banking and capital markets, uh, Guy Gibson, who in a weak moment somehow persuaded me to quit my cushy, well-paid job and and step out into the unknown uh, and set up our own business, which we called Aviate Global. So while Guy ran the business and built out our distribution network. My job was to produce our thematic research. And our research process was, was not to take a view on, on every stock in the S&P, but, but nor would our active clients reflect a view on every stock. The, their job, which we tried to mimic, was to identify where the real money, money-making opportunities were in markets and then try and find the best ways to express those drivers. Our belief was that mm-hmm. big, big money is made from from big ideas. So if you get the, the first order mover right, then the second and third derivative should take care mm-hmm. of themselves. And so this idea of, of trying to identify where the tides were rising uh, is pretty much 
the process I, I still employ today, whether that be to, to markets or indeed to thinking about our own strategy. Tell me more about this, this investment wave, this rising tide. Well, I mean, it could be anything from, if you can pick the direction of oil prices, for example, then you can identify, I think, with some degree of, of, of certainty, the direction of oil stocks. That's the second derivative. The third derivative may be you also have some indication as to where inflation might be heading, which, of course, is a, is a key factor to, to get right in, in times like these. So it's really just identifying where the big drivers of change were first, mm-hmm. and then everything else should flow from that. All right. Got it. All right. So then you sold your business to Northern Trust. Why did you do that? Good question. And I often get asked, you know, why did Northern buy Aviate? Certainly when they did, which was months ahead of Mifid 2. And and in fairness, I probably didn't give that question much thought at the time, but I've had to more recently. And the answer, I think, is quite simple, and that is Northern Trust is a solutions-focused firm. Its job is to identify and anticipate client problems and build or find solutions for when these problems manifest. And if you go back to 2015, when we first started talking to Norman, it was fairly clear that client margins were, were under pressure even way back then. And having already helped remove costs from the back and the middle office, the front office was the next logical area of focus for Northern Trust. And so buying expertise in that space was just an extension of that solutions-focused mindset. So we joined in the middle of 2016, uh, I became co-head of brokerage with Guy and ran our research product. But within about 18 months, it became pretty clear that Mifid was going to impact our research commissions. And, and so out of necessity, more than perhaps anything else, we, we were forced to pivot. And I moved to help set up and then run our outsourced trading business, which we call Integrated Trading Solutions or, or ITS. And we grew that business from... Uh, from starting with one client and, and less than a, a billion dollars of funds under execution to now where it's you know getting up towards 100 clients and, and closer to half a trillion dollars of funds under execution. And I'm pretty convinced that outsourced dealing becomes the norm as we move forward for it not only solves immediately for a client's scale and expertise challenge, but it also helps create a more agile, flexible, and resilient platform, which I think are the hallmarks of a future state operating model. Take it to today. Outline your current role for us, please, as Global Head of Strategic Solutions. Sure. So um, so after ITS, I, I sat down with Pete Chirowicz, who's uh, President of Asset Servicing, and and we said, right, where's the next gap? Where's the next opportunity we need to go after? And that was to really expand on the efforts of of ITS and and move further up the value chain of our clients and to develop that sort of connective tissue with the CIOs and the CEOs who seem to be concentrating a lot of decision rights. So in order to do that, I spent about a year getting to know all of our services, at least enough to be dangerous, (laughs) during which time Pete put me in charge of the messaging around our whole office strategy. And, And for those that are perhaps uninitiated, what whole office acknowledges is these two essential truths. The first is no two clients are the same. And so we must have solutions that fit around the client, not force the client to fit around our solutions. And the second is 
our client is recognizing that our client problems no longer stop at cost and complexity, but extend to performance and returns. So we must have solutions that go beyond you know, scale, go beyond data, even, even dealing, and reach the ultimate decision makers in the investment teams themselves. And so now I spend a lot of my time traveling and talking to CEOs and CIOs, trying to better understand their challenges and hope of solving them, but also using that information to better inform how we think about our own product development and how we position our solutions and services internally. And I just think that makes us a better partner. I also, as part of that, write a, a weekly missive of my thoughts and, and, and the findings of, of these conversations combined with my own sort of macro and thematic ramblings, which, which we call the weekender, which I know some already receive. And if they don't, they're, they're of course, very welcome to. All right, and the Pete you mentioned, that was Pete Cherowich? It was, yes. Okay. Now, you talked about earlier that these waves, eyeing the big waves for the big next idea. Where do you see the next waves coming from, and what transformational changes do you anticipate? Sure. So let's separate the industry into, into owners and managers, those with the money and, and those with the investment ideas. And if we start with with the owners, uh, I guess there's two big trends that, that we observe. Uh, the first is consolidation, where the owner community seems to be consolidating faster than the market that serves them, meaning they're gaining a tremendous amount of size in bargaining. Now, this is a far cry from when I first started in this game way back when, when there were hundreds of, of owners and really only a handful of funds to invest in, even fewer hedge funds. But now they're, the whole thing's flipped on its head and there's fewer and fewer owners, but there are more funds than equities. So this presents a new competitive dynamic in the industry, not just in terms of fees, but also in terms of talent. And that's because many are looking to insource certain fund management activities. And they're starting to, to resemble more sort of complex multi-asset funds than the, the sleepy pension providers of the past. And that, of course, has implications for us, too, as, as their partners. And, and we need to ensure we can service all their requirements as they grow and, and become more complex. So that's the first, the first big, big observation, big driver, big change element. Mm -hmm. The second big driver of change is, is performance. Now, to help you understand what I mean by that, if I was to step back a year or two, and if I was to ask clients back then what their biggest challenge was, they would have probably said any combination of cost, regulation, liquidity, technology, talent scarcity. And whilst many of these still exist today, certainly, you know, certainly liquidity does, a new front runner emerged last year, and that was performance. Now, by performance, I, I don't mean the, the headline issue that last year was a really bad year for, for balanced funds. Right. Uh, I mean something more, more pernicious, more, more foundational. And, and that's the idea that the tools and techniques that you know, worked well the last few decades may not be the right tools and techniques that work well going forward. And that an entire generation of investor may be ill-equipped to deal with a new market regime, a regime defined by inflation and interest rate volatility. And that volatility is, is the key aspect here which isn't something we've dealt with unless you go back to the 1970s. And not many folks I speak to you know, have real-time experience in the 70s. 
And so I think this new regime requires a new approach to how we think about risk, how we think about returns, and, and indeed how we think about diversification. And to give you an example of some of the things I'm, I'm, I'm picking up, you know, I'm seeing a lot of owners now being far more deliberate about trying to find real returns, which for some means, you know, moving away from or, or forcing their managers to move away from peer or, or index benchmarking towards more absolute or CPI-linked return profiles. And within that context, you know, equities still provide the best real returns over a very long period. There is some emerging concern that U.S. equities, given where they are from a valuation standpoint, could be range-bound for a while, like they were in the 70s, where, where markets go sideways, but where multiples compress over time. Now, of course, you can still make money in a sideways market. It's just not in all stocks, the index, in other words. But some stocks can still do very well. The trick is you have to find those stocks. So mm -hmm. I think a few managers, uh, sorry, owners are starting to think more about being having more active share. And sometimes that active share is coming at the regional level. And they're thinking more about where they can find a valuation premium or rather more margin of safety from a valuation standpoint in other regions like the UK, like Japan, and even Brazil, which I'd argue provide more protection to the risk of inflation if that is something they're trying to protect from. But while equities are still the major focus, there, there, there are now questions as to how to provide ballast. How, how do we diversify our equity portfolio to smooth returns over time. Now, that was a role bonds traditionally have played, but the evidence suggests the negative correlation only exists in periods of benign inflation. Anything above three and three and a half percent inflation, the, the correlation is actually positive. And so what we saw for the first two decades of the 20th century could be the exception and not the rule. So they're looking for new alternatives to provide the for non-correlated returns. And so you know, this is in a context where other alternatives are being challenged, right? Certainly real estate's under challenge this year, PE also. Um, and in case of PE, this will be the first year of underperformance. And there are starting to emerge some structural concerns around private equity insofar that regulators are demanding greater transparency and, and more frequent valuations, which might impact the ability to smooth returns, which is an inherent feature of that asset class. Outside of that, we're seeing interest in, in new areas like supply-constrained real assets, infrastructure, forestry, farmland. We're not yet seeing much in commodities like gold, or, although I think that will change over coming years. And I think for those that move early, they'll get the benefits of, of, of that. And there are also things we're picking up that owners are doing internally to optimise returns. For example, I'm seeing more use of derivatives in tilting and in hedging programmes. I'm seeing more focus on balance sheet optimization, and indeed new liquidity tools like FIC repo being accessed. The bottom line is though, Patrice, is we can expect just a greater range of outcomes, different assets and different complexities, which all must be serviced. And if you're trying to pick on a key point, it's this, never before has successful strategy being so dependent on structure. And what I mean by that is the data and the operational architecture that underlines all these invest investments, both, both old and new. And therefore it's critical we as partners 
have those capabilities in place today in order to service these complexities, be that from providing holistic data solutions across their entire portfolio or to access financing or liquidity tools. But it's really important that we get on top of these requirements now because that's the direction of travel for our clients. That's a very thoughtful and complete answer, Gary. That's for owners. What about asset managers? How about the key challenges they face? Well, see above um, consolidation <laughs> and bargaining. So that's that's a big one. I think, yeah, they would say you know competitive fee pressure is a is a is a real is a real problem. Look, I I think there is perhaps even a a, a more concerning aspect for some, and that is this idea that the economics for a number of fund management companies are starting to creak. And what I mean by that is the positive operating leverage we, we've seen for, you know, for decades uh, where you know, margins would rise as assets went up is starting to diminish. And this is because of the structural increase in, in fixed costs. And, and up until, I think, 2019, you know, a rising market would, would hide these costs. But once that's now in question, and so if you were to see markets flatline or heaven forbid fall, I think it would expose these costs and you'd see margins come under increasing pressure. And what does that mean for managers? Well, it means they're going to have to think about how they can really scale their business. And there's only two routes to scale, right? The one is the first one is by increasing the numerator, which is, you know, good old fashioned consolidation. Mm-hmm. And the second is by decreasing the denominator. Right, by radically reducing costs. Now, many I speak to no longer want to merge for the sake of merging, right? Merge for the sake of scale, because there's plenty of examples of where that's been tricky, shall we say. That said, there are quite a few that are looking at merger or, or acquisitions from a capability play, but that's a different, you know, that, that's another sideshow, that's another talk show. The more optimal solution. I believe, is to think about reducing costs by simplifying models and becoming more capital light, best achieved by renting the fixed cost expertise and infrastructure off a scale provider. Now, lots of managers I speak to, none of them, sorry, lots of them that I speak to don't want to go through another 20% drawdown like they did earlier this decade. Uh, without some ability to manipulate their costs in order to protect profitability. And what they're thinking more about is, right, move to this variable cost or this capital light model because it will not only improve margin resiliency in the face of that asset volatility, it will increase agility in the face of change. And we've already identified that change could be a constant in this new regime. It's going to improve resiliency in the face of disruption, and that's critical in a post-pandemic world, and obviously improve operating leverage in the face of asset growth, which gets us back to good industry dynamics. And if that's starting to sound a little bit like the software industry... Exactly, exactly. I, I think you should trust your instincts because I think that's the perfect, perfect analogy of where we're heading. And, and, and why do I say this? I say this because the output of fund management, the actual product, the actual widget fund managers are trying to produce isn't a fund. It's not alpha. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? It's a decision. It's software, 
right? It's IP. So thinking about how the software sector is set up, I think, is really instructive. And, and what do software companies do? Well, they double down on the IP, the clever people and the clever systems and obviously the management and the control around that. But then they outsource all the highly capital-intensive, lower-value-added parts to hyperscale providers and rent activities back as a service, such that what Azure, Microsoft Azure, is to IT, I believe in time we, Northern Trust, and other asset services become to IM, the investment managers. Hmm. And what does this mean for the industry? Well, I think this helps because it provides firms especially those smaller firms, right? Sub a trillion dollars, pick a number. But you know those firms that aren't in the stratosphere in, in terms of size, it provides them with a way to bend the scale curve to their favor, to remove the inbuilt bias of size in the industry, level the playing field, and get back to competing on alpha and not on cost, which is the name of the game. And what does this mean for the industry? Well, it produces more choice, and more competition. So I think that's a good outcome. And so I hope it succeeds because if it does, we will and so will our, so will our clients. And as I mentioned earlier, through our whole office strategy, we can now deliver services that cover all operational and investment needs and provide solutions to problems that extend beyond cost, beyond data, beyond even dealing and go to the very decision makers themselves in order to co-create client success, which to me is what it's all about and and why I do my job. And that brings me to AI. What applications do you see for that coming up? Well, hot topic, isn't it? Um, (laughs) So where do I stand on AI? So I'm in the camp that artificial intelligence is the antidote for natural stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) Can I quote and, you on that? <laughs> um, you can't. I, it's it's definitely not my quote. It would be someone someone actually real. But what I mean by that is, I, I think we should all all be harnessing the powers of these amazing tools to to improve our decision outputs. But do I think AI will take my job or or my clients' jobs? And let me just sort of define my client here, the CIO or the CEOs of, of asset owners and asset managers. And the answer is, I don't. But a human who knows how to use AI might take their job. Mm-hmm. Um, so so while I think it's going to improve productivity in a, in a number of industries, right, it, especially creative industries and, and even our own, the jury's out on whether it will increase aggregate demand. Or, or prove a step change uh, for output as much as, say, the, I don't know, the, the introduction of the automobile or Victorian plumbing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, few things change the world as much as the invention of the loo. Right? <laughs> true, true, true. So in, in terms of how AI might impact us in asset servicing, look, of course, there are going to be benefits to any work stream or any work process that draws on internal or relatively static data sets, things like customer relationship management, producing RFPs, our marketing and our distribution documents. Yep. Without a doubt, there are huge benefits that AI can provide for those. Um, I've even seen successful application with risk modeling. I'm sure the likes of MSCI and Bloomberg already have some pretty handy tools. But of course, you'd expect that given they own the data and the data really is the, the scarcity here. 
But to go anywhere beyond that, and, and I'm sure we will in time, but to get there, there are a few things we need to solve first. And the first is, and this is an industry challenge, and that's the, the data challenge, right? Having all the data in the right shape and in the right place before you can train, that AI, uh, train the AI. Mm -hmm. There's a question mark around the cost of that data. Um, I suspect it's going only one way, and so that could be a big challenge. But then perhaps the biggest challenge of all, especially in a regulated industry, is the governance piece. For who wants to be responsible for a system that at its core is generative, meaning it makes stuff up, right? You hear about hallucinations and these things. And given the nature of these neural networks makes it impossible, I think, to show your working in quotes, or fire the culprit, I think it could be a challenge forever or if you're ever faced with a steward's inquiry, which, you know, you never know, one day might happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's a challenge. I'm not quite sure how the industry thinks about overcoming that. So while I see benefits and I'm excited about the future, where I caution is on the speed of travel. For I think like there always are in these new, new ways, there's always a few false dawns before the real value applications begin to emerge. So it's exciting, but I think we just need to fix a few things on the way before we can really unleash this potential. There is one thing I could add, which is this idea about not generative AI so much, but thinking more about these, these wonderful new data tools that we can access. And the only thing I would say is if you can access these wonderful new tools, there's a fair chance others can as well. And if you do that, well, that's fine. But just know that there is an inverse correlation between signal value and use. And so over time, the value of these tools will erode. Now, the only data set that can't be accessed by others and where these tools might have real validity is your own, right? Is the data that's sort of in the heads of your people, that which walk in at 7 and out at 5.30. And if there are ways to capture that data, to codify it, you know, to put that into a system so that it can be subjected to review and therefore improvement. I think that's where real value and real edge lies, is harnessing the value of your own data, the data that lies in the heads of your investment teams. That's one area I think there's real edge and real value. And I've, you know, see a lot of folks thinking about how they can extract that going forward. All right. Gary, this has been fantastic, uh, and I'm sure listeners would want to connect with you. How can they do that, and how can they find out more about what we've talked about today? Sure. So they can sign up to receive The Weekender, which you can do uh, via, the, via the northerntrust.com website, and, and that's just a, you know, a weekly perspective on global markets and developments and, and, and bits and pieces, or they can follow me on LinkedIn, probably right. the two easiest ways. Fantastic. Gary, thank you so much for your time. And of course, this really insightful discussion on your role at Northern Trust, the trends you're seeing for your asset owner and asset manager clients, and the ways AI may impact the industry. Good stuff. And listener, thank you for listening to Faster Forward from Northern Trust Asset Servicing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Faster Forward from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. 
The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel. Northern Trust Corporation, Head Office 50 South LaSalle Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60603. USA Incorporated with limited liability in the U.S. 